it's coming home. Well, it was until Wednesday night, wasn't it? Um, unfortunately, it's not. The English have a really warped view of footballing history as well. Um, a game similar to football was played in Greece, Rome and China thousands of years ago. Scotland refined the rules of football to make it different to rugby. And FIFA was formed in Paris in 1904 and Uruguay won the first World Cup. So I have no idea what they actually mean by it's coming home. Uh, because this isn't its home. But today we see people in Israel thinking just the same. They think it is coming home. Not in relation to a World Cup, but in terms of the Kingdom of God as we'll see and as we'll learn a little bit about what that means. Look down with me and keep, please keep the passage open with you. Look at verse 11. It's really nice when a passage of scripture does this. It tells us why we're being told this parable. Verse 11, it says, he told, us, he told them this parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Just like England, the people were deluded. Uh, they thought that the kingdom of God was about to come. What is the kingdom of God? Really quick overview. The Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth and all living things. It teaches that mankind rebelled against God's rule over them. It says that the right, just punishment for our rebellion against our maker is death, separation from God for eternity. However, it teaches that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to earth to take the punishment we deserve through his death on the cross. It says that from the beginning it's been God's plan to save a people for himself and to renew the world for that people. From the beginning of time that's been his plan. <coughs> the Bible tells he rose from the dead and then he went back to heaven. He returned to his father but he is coming back. Jesus will return. The world will be restored. Jesus will reign as king and those who have put their trust in him will live in the new heavens and the new earth with him as his people. The people in Israel in the first century thought that this was coming now, that Jesus was bringing this second phase of his return now. Scripture said uh, his return would happen in Jerusalem. At this point in Jesus' life, he's only 18 miles away from Jerusalem. He's in Jericho, about six and a half hours walk, depending on how quick you want to walk. Jesus himself has been claiming throughout the Gospel of Luke to be the Christ, the promised king who would come and bring in his reign and his rule. He's not changing his tack on that now. And in the story just before this one, we have the story of Zacchaeus, the great story. A tax collector has been saved. Jesus has declared salvation has come. And the people at this time, as we need to look at this passage through the lens of those who first heard it, they would have been thinking, if salvation has come for this man, for a tax collector, for a sinful man, the, the worst of the worst tax collectors were in those days, then surely it's coming for everyone. Everything was pointing to the fact that it was coming. The kingdom of God, his perfect rule and his reign is coming. It's coming home. In every generation, don't we, you see the signs. We get people who say the end of the world is nigh. or The world is about to end. I think when I was preparing this, I was wondering for us in Vista today where the issue is probably more the opposite. We don't consider the fact that one day the end of the world will come about as we know it and that Jesus will return. We live as if he isn't coming back. And Jesus tells this parable to speak to both of us here. It's a real tension in this life as a Christian. We must hold two truths together. We must live in light of his imminent return. Be ready, be on watch because Jesus is coming back. 
but also let's live wisely and make really good investments for his kingdom, knowing that his return may not be as soon as we hope. We must have both a short and a long-term view of life, and we must hold these in tension, and this is what this parable speaks into. Um, as we go through it, in light of this concept, I think it strikes us with three main questions. Uh, who is the king of my life? What am I living for? What is my purpose, as Lanks was just saying just now? And where am I going? We're going to look at those three questions. Um, I'm going to pray again because we really need God's help as we look at this. So please bow your heads, pray with me, uh, and then we're going to dive into those questions. <coughs> Father, thank you so much that you tell stories to teach us. Uh, thank you that you tell stories to convict us. Um, Lord, we pray your word, the Bible, will do both these things today. Um, Lord, you may show us more of you and who you are. You may help us understand more about this world you've created and about what is going on. Uh, and you may help us know what it looks like now to live for you within this world, uh, to give you all the glory um, as we long and we wait for your return. So help us now, pray. Help us to listen, I pray. Amen. Who is the king of my life? Have a look down at the passage with me. Verses 12 and 13. Here's our first character we meet. A man of noble birth. Uh, he is going to go to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then he's going to return. Uh, this would have been a real live story for the people at that time. Um, it would have been something which they could relate to. Jesus is a genius at telling stories they could relate to. Uh, king Herod, uh, the one around the time Jesus was born, he died shortly after Jesus was born. And his son, also called Herod, uh, obviously a good name, had to go to Rome, who were the sort of kings in charge, really, and seek authority to continue to rule on their behalf in Israel. He was gonna go away and seek to become made king. So it's a real situation which Jesus latches onto to help teach them. Whilst this king is away, he calls his 10 servants to him as he's just about to go, and he gives them uh, a minor or 10 minors, it's quite hard to understand how many, but basically he gives them a unit of money, about an equivalent of three months wages. So he gives them a decent amount of money. Uh, in the Middle East at that time, and similarly today, there were no stable political institutions. Um, I was in Egypt in 2009, two days before the revolution took place. Uh, millions went to the streets and they overthrew the government. It was utter chaos. Uh, and now imagine the president of Egypt at the time, it was Hosni Mubarak, not a very nice man, but imagine at the time he was gonna leave the country, it's safe for him to leave the country, he needs to go. Um, he calls his servants, his loyal followers, and he says to them, he goes, I'm off for a while. But whilst I'm gone, here's three months' wages. I want you to open shops. I want you to open businesses in my name. C call it the presidential carpet shop or whatever they're going to be selling. And remember, I am coming back. What would the servants do? The question being asked here, are you willing to take the risk? Are you willing to openly declare yourselves to be my loyal servants during my absence? in a world where many may oppose me and may oppose my rule. In his absence, the king is saying, it's going to cost a high price to identify as my people, as my followers, and I'm concerned with how you act whilst I am gone. Jesus, as we'll see, as we have seen through Luke, he's saying he's the king. He's the Messiah who has been promised. So he's not telling this story to dampen that speculation. He's just trying to change people's understanding of the timing of his return. And if Jesus is king, if Jesus is this man going away for a time to be appointed king, 
then Rome isn't for the people listening at that time, and we're not. You see, in our, in our current world today, I'm sure we see it, this clashes massively with our worldview of individualism, so dominant. What the world says today is live for yourself. What you want, grab that, it will make you happy. We see it in spirituality. Spirituality is on the rise because people go, oh, I'll have a bit of that, I'll have a bit of that, whatever will make me happy. And if it makes you happy and it doesn't offend anyone, then great. That's the sweet spot. But Jesus speaks into this culture a little bit uncomfortably because he speaks with real authority. When I first started looking to Christianity for myself, I quickly realised Jesus doesn't allow us to have him as just a little bit on the side or, or just a little part of my life. He spoke with a unique authority and he made unique claims. We see that throughout his Gospels. Please do read one if you haven't. And those claims are backed up by unique actions, especially his resurrection from the dead. And when I was looking into this, he really didn't allow me to compartmentalise him as just part of my life. You see, Jesus calls us to not have him as just a guest. He calls us to have him as king, as lord, as master of our lives. <coughs> and as we go down in the story to when the king returns, he's crowned as king, he returns in verse 17. Notice how he responds to the first servant who comes to him, having earned ten more miners. Verse 17, he says, Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy, probably a better translation is faithful, because you've been faithful in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. You see, on his return, he rewards the servant not for success, but for faithfulness. He asks, how much business have you done? He's trying to gorge the extent to which they've lived boldly and publicly as servants of him as their king. Think back to the shops. The presidential carpet shop in that power vacuum. Have they lived boldly and publicly as servants of him as their king? And so it raises the question, who is our Lord and who is our king? Who's in charge in your life? Who is in the driving seat? I hope that's a challenge today, not just for those maybe sitting here today inquiring about the Christian faith, but also for those who sit here today as Christians. Who is the Lord and King in your life? And in today's culture, when it's not necessarily popular to be a Christian, and the trajectory probably sees it's only going to get slightly less popular to hold certain views, will you identify publicly as my people, we're being asked here? I read a story about a Bible college in Latvia in the 1990s, uh, a niche story I know. Uh, it used to interview prospective students for the college, people to come and study to be pastors at that time. And the interviewer said the most important question they asked was this. When were you baptised? When were you baptised? The most important question. And you may wonder why they felt this was the most important question. Well, if they were baptised during the period of Soviet rule in Latvia in the 1980s, 1970s, 1960s, then they risked their lives and they compromised everything to be identified as a follower of Jesus. Post-liberation in the 1990s, after the wall fell, if they were baptised, then great, praise God, but there may be some further questions to answer about the why they wanted to become pastors. They identified boldly and publicly in the midst of potential real persecution and danger. We heard earlier, we've seen in the story, how the king went away to gain the right to rule. And for Jesus, as we see this, it's a real foretaste of him as he heads to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Luke 19, we're near the end. Heads to Jerusalem, he lays down his life at the cross. 
He's raised to new life so that we can be pronounced clean and go to his kingdom when he returns. He will return as king. The noble man will return as king. And we live in this middle time. After Christ has first come, he's gone away, but he will come back. So that's the first issue raised by this story. Who is the king of your life? Who is in charge? Secondly, we see this question flow up. What am I living for? Now, whilst the king is gone, he calls his servants together and he wants to say there is a job to do. Verse 13, look down with me. He calls 10 of his servants. He gave them 10 miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. I think if we get this, if we understand what Jesus is saying here, we'll never lack a sense of purpose in life. How amazing would that be? We often hear it asked, don't we? Uh, what is the meaning of life? What's the point of life? Why am I here? What am I doing? What's the point? And maybe you're sitting here today, you're not quite satisfied with life, with a lot you've been given. Most of us in this room, um, Bar Lanks, probably a pre-midlife crisis age, um, but we may still be having that nagging feeling that we're not quite sure what we're doing and why we're doing it. Maybe you're a mum chasing around kids at home. Maybe work's a real drag, really difficult. Maybe it's something else. Let me say to you, Christian here today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a royal commission. In the story, the servants represent, I take it, all the followers of Jesus. He gives them a large amount of money each. It's not a token amount, is it? About three months' wages, a decent amount of money. What do the miners represent? They're not seemingly talents. This story is similar, but also really markedly different to the one Jesus tells in Matthew about talents. Because here, each of the servants are given an equal share, an equal amount of miners. It's a very generous and it's a free gift. So I think we can take the miners as meaning the gospel of Christ. We all receive the same. And the gospel is a deposit now that is meant to make a difference in our lives. It's not like uh, the ticket when you go to a sports match. If you're anything like me or, or a concert, uh, you get the ticket, uh, you look after it, and then you don't think about it again until the day you need it. Uh, and then if you're like me, the day before it, you can't actually find the ticket. It's not like that, because those tickets are just a pledge, they're a promise for the future that is going to get you in. The gospel is definitely this. It's a glorious promise for the future, but that's not all it is. It gives us a wonderful purpose for the present. We are to live and work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere, work out your salvation. <coughs> and this parable tells us that what we receive from Christ must make a difference in our lives. The book uh, we looked at earlier by Milton Vincent, this one here, you'll have seen it with the, the cover here. It's got 31 ways that the gospel can make a difference in our lives now. Do keep reading this. We're going to move on to another book, but do keep reading this. 31 ways that can make a difference in our lives now. I'm thankful to not have had parents who constantly asked me, what are you going to do with your life? But I have friends for whom that was a constant question. But for a Christian, the joy is this question is no longer near as significant because the fundamental direction of your life has been set for you. We are called to live and work for the Lord Jesus as his servants. Think about where you'll be at 12 p.m. tomorrow. Maybe you'll be at work, you'll be at home with the kids, at the shops, whatever you might be, wherever you are, you're a servant of Christ. This is your royal commission. This is your purpose. What do I mean by being a servant of Christ? The Bible helps us see lots of things which this can mean. It shows us what living a life in response to what Jesus has done looks like. 
As Lang said, we're going to be reading Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper as our next book together in the next few months. I'm really looking forward to being challenged by this. We think through, what am I living for? What is my purpose? And as the title of the book suggests, it's a treatise to live a life of purpose in response to what God has done. I think it's worth just pulling into a lay by making it abundantly clear at this point. The gospel is a free gift, just like the miners. It's not something earned or deserved. We are justified. We're made right before God, not because of what we do. But we're then called to live in response to that free gift, to live a life which enjoys God, which enjoys his creation, the gifts he's given us, and uses them to make him look amazing, like the God he is. Not to sit there idly, as we'll see in a minute when we see how the master deals with the unfaithful servant, but to live sacrificially in response to the king. There's many passages I could have chosen um, reading Don't Waste Your Life, but here's one particularly challenging chapter John Piper writes about work. He says, God's will in this age is that his people be scattered like salt and light in all legitimate vocations. His aim is to be known because knowing him is life and joy. He does not call us out of the world. He does not remove the need to work. Through his scattered saints, he spreads a passion for his supremacy in all things for the joy of all peoples. If you work like the world, you'll waste your life no matter how rich you get. But if your work creates a web of redemptive relationships and becomes an adornment for the gospel of the glory of Christ, your satisfaction will last forever and God will be exalted with joy. What does a life of purpose look like? One which serves God, which magnifies him and which shouts of him. Whether you work or not, whether you're at home or in your office, you have a purpose. What a glorious gospel this is. If you live for money, when it goes away, you're going to be devastated. If you live for your job, if it gets taken away, then what are you living for? If your purpose in life is ambition, then when someone else gets promoted ahead of you, it kills you. But if you live for Jesus, nothing can touch you. It doesn't take away the pain of some of those situations, but nothing can touch you. Your purpose stands still. I've just been down at my parents' home for the last few days. My dad is retiring as a headmaster after 39 years of schoolmastering. Uh, he was at boarding school from the age of five as well. He's been out 55 years at school, which is ridiculous. Um, it was quite a moving time uh, for me as the school said goodbye. He's a godly man. I was really proud and privileged to be his son. He's taught me a lot. He's been serving God through education for nearly 40 years. He's looked to educate brilliantly. He has a brilliant plaque on his wall which says, uh, we I need to get this right, it's better to build children than to repair men. It's one of his philosophies, it's great. He's looked to educate brilliantly. He's looked to share Christ wherever he goes. He did it boldly and publicly in front of thousands as all the parents came on Thursday. Wherever he goes, he's looked to live for him and live like him. Uh, lots of people asked him, they asked me as well, what's going to change now? How would he be putting his feet up and relaxing having done his job? And he was really quick to say, no, in many senses, nothing is changing. His context is changing, but his purpose is the same. His purpose is to serve the king, to glorify the king, and to proclaim him wherever he might be. The Christian life gives you a real purpose. Put the gospel to work as God's servant. That's the second thing we see here. And finally, we see where am I going as a question this parable raises. Um, all worldviews um, have a vision about the future. Here's 
what Richard Dawkins says is his. He says, we know from the second law of thermodynamics that all complexity, all life, all laughter and all sorrow is hell-bent on leveling itself out into cold nothingness in the end. All worldviews have a vision of the future. That's materialism. Nothing but, ba ma but matter. So in the beginning there was nothing, and that's what it's going to be like at the end. Nothing. In the Bible it does start in the beginning. It starts in the beginning with God. Loving, sovereign, kind, a good God. He made a perfect world which has been messed up by our rebellion. God, from the beginning, though, he's been so committed to saving the world and his people, he sent his son, King Jesus, to put things right. And he will return. He is coming back to finally put it all right with a perfect <coughs> new world. This is the future of the world. And the answer to the question, where am I going, depends on your response to him. Look in verse 27. I'm glad we read it and didn't stop at verse 26. Some people reject the nobleman's authority and they don't want him to be king. And it says, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Just for story, the parallel is clear and it seems very harsh, doesn't it? It's a story, but it speaks of reality. And it's really not very harsh at all. It's inevitable. When Jesus came first to bring the kingdom of God, in his grace, he didn't say he was going to crush everyone who was in rebellion over him. He could have done that. That's what we would assume would happen. If rebels take over a kingdom and then the king comes back, what are you going to do? You're going to crush the rebels. It's exactly what happened in Egypt in the revolution. Political distance, people who didn't agree with the king, gone. Jesus doesn't do that. They deserve judgment, but what does he do? Jesus takes that judgment on himself. He is despised. He is rejected, and he takes the judgment. He offers amnesty on the basis of the judgment he has received. Anyone who trusts in him does not need to face that judgment. He then uses his spirit. He uses his people as witnesses to go to the world and call on them to repent, to turn around and to believe. But for those who persistently say no to him, those who persistently say no to them, what can they expect when he returns at the end of time? It was also really sad last few days. My grandparents were there, um, 94 and 88. I think if I get that right. They don't know the Lord. Praise God that my dad does, due to a boarding school headmaster at the age of five who shared the gospel with him. It's really sad. We've given them, me and my mum were talking in the car. We were looking at ourselves and going, have we given them every opportunity to hear about Jesus? I think we have. They're at church this morning. My big prayer is this morning they'll hear the gospel for the a thousandth time and turn. And the sad thing is persistently they have just said no. I wrote them a letter. I explained to them the gospel. And I got a lovely reply back which said it's just not for me. Persistently said no. Earlier we've seen the faithful servants. The faithful servants put their money to work. Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Your miner has earned five more, we see. Notice there's no boasting there. It's his miner. It's not theirs. Your miner. Your gift, your free gift has earned ten more. The power is not in us, but it's in what is entrusted to us. All the glory goes to him. And notice then how the response of the master to the faithful servants is outrageously out of proportion, isn't it? Well done, good servant. Because you've been trustworthy or faithful in a small matter, 
take charge of 10 cities. Coin, city. Very, very different. This is completely in character of God. It's not out of character, it's in character. He gives us what we really do not deserve. I mean, I've wrestled with this. I've read more about these things in the last few weeks, but it's clear this is not contradicting the great truth of God's grace. What he gives us is completely undeserved. And yet, as we respond to the amazing grace he's given us, actually, he will take into account at the end of time what we have done with that grace. Have we responded to it faithfully? The uh, great bishop of Liverpool in the 1900s, J.C. Ryle, he once said, our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be in proportion to our works. And there's a real mystery there, isn't there? It's a picture language that speaks of a reality. Those who have made use of a small amount they've been given now will be given greater responsibilities in heaven. There's no suggestion that there'll be envy. Why has he got 10 cities and she have five? I will delight in the rewards and responsibilities that others have got. And it's hard to imagine and get our heads around, but at the very least, it says that what we do in this life matters. God, in a way, marks our work. Um, a child came home from work one day, school one day. Child wasn't at work. Child came home from school one day and she said, Mum, my teacher doesn't love me. Mum asked, Why on earth would you say that? Well, she never marks my work. So it's true that when we trust in Christ, at that moment, if it's real faith, we are guaranteed to be with Christ forever. Praise God. But what is the sign of it? This faith is worked out in practice. That's for faithful servants. Hopefully that's a challenge. But there's an unfaithful servant who doesn't put his money to work. He doesn't put his money to work, and we see that he doesn't really even know his master. He doesn't know the king. And he says in verse 20, I've kept your miner laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not sow, did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. And we know the king isn't like this. We've just seen how the king deals with the faithful servants, how generous he is to those who work faithfully in his absence. The man has a twisted view of his master. And so the king lets the servant's own words condemn him. He sarcastically responds. I will judge you by your own words, verse 21, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? There's a warning here, I think. You can be outwardly known as a servant, outwardly known as a Christian, as a follower of God, but it can make no difference in your life. The man doesn't know the master. He takes no <coughs> risk. He shows no sacrifice for his king. And I think there's another lesson there. The only people who are going to discover real, true life as God intends it are those who are willing to throw their lives away. To live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul says. And here's a question. Are we prepared to change in areas of our life which might be costly? Are we prepared, like the shopkeepers in the Middle East, to boldly live for Jesus amongst our friends in Bista? Let me make it clear again. No one is saved by their works. No one is saved by what they do. But no one is saved without works, as true faith does change lives. And with this challenge to sacrificially live as his servants, it is hard, isn't it? It's daunting to be called to sacrificially live as his servants, to not waste your life, take risks. Well, praise God, we can look to Jesus, can't we? We're going to do it in a minute at communion. It's here at the cross we find forgiveness for hard hearts where we've not loved as we should. 
And we see inspiration as well as we see that any sacrifice <coughs> Jesus is calling us to make is nothing compared to his. And as I close, my final question is this. We've seen who the master was, the loving Lord Jesus. He's come back. He's coming back as king. People have different views of him, but he's coming back. He's good. He's outrageously generous. We've seen his servants, the followers of Jesus, challenged to put the generous gifts of the master to work before he returns, to live life with real purpose. We also have the citizens of the land. We see in verses 14 and verses 27. 14, his subjects hated him, sent a delegation after him, said, we don't want this man to be our king. And in verse 27, we see the enemies come before him. So my final question is this. Are you a citizen or are you a servant? It's the most important distinction in the world. Your eternal destiny is determined by this decision here. Is Jesus the king of the earth or is he one you will reject? If he is Messiah, if he's king, then you're to be his servant doing what is he commanded and looking for his return, doing business faithfully until that day. You've become a servant simply by trusting in Jesus as God's king, as the one who came to die for our rebellion and who will come again as judge of all the king of all the earth. Our eternal destiny is determined by whether we are a citizen or a servant. May we be servants. May you be a servant. And if you're a servant, maybe be faithful servants, ones to whom the master will say at the end of time, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that your word is full of great encouragement and great challenge. Lord, thank you that we see that you are a good and generous king, gives us more than we deserve, who's given us the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a purpose to live as your people, to serve you as our king. Lord, help us to be your servants. Help us to be people who are willing, like those Middle Eastern shopkeepers, to say, I follow King Jesus no matter what it costs. Help us, Lord, to trust in you in all things. Help us to trust in you for our eternity, for our destiny. Lord, and for people here today who maybe haven't acknowledged you as king, Lord, we know that you are good and you are gracious and you are kind, Lord, and you offer it as a free gift for those who turn to you and respond to you. Lord, we pray today, if there are people in this room today, Lord, you may save and bring people to you as your servants. We praise you as King of Kings, and we thank you. Amen.